episode 55. Wow. We're here. We were just here, and now we're back. Everyone wants more podcasts, so... Well, here you go. This is apparently what we do in our free time now. I like it. It's fun. It's pretty much what we do anyways in our free time. What? Talk to each other? Yeah. And so all we're really doing is putting on microphones and recording it? Yep. I guess so. I guess so. I do feel like... I don't know what our intro story is going to be because we just... We were just here. Okay. I... Something happened to me this morning when I was out running. And it it was, was it a brownout. It wasn't a brownout. But I did decide. Did you get in a fight with a cyclist? No, I did decide during the run, I'm going to do more research than I've already done and try to actually figure out like what causes issues with your stomach running. Like it seems like experienced runners get it, but like non-experienced runners get it too. I think the thing with non-experienced runners is it's all of the, like, you're like transverse abdominals. Like it literally, it makes your, the muscles around your intestines contract. Well, yeah, it fatigues them. And so then they, you lose kind of the muscular control, some muscular control. And I think that leads to discomfort. Like when you're just starting out. But then what about people who are, is it just like the level of exertion? Do you notice it more with your like fast runs? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But I have clients also who've struggled and I know like marathoners struggle as well. And so there's different things you can do like recommendations to take a modium, um, not eating certain things like taking intra workout carbs can cause issues for certain people. So yeah, especially I was going to deep dive into that. I remember after my half marathon, I was quite uncomfortable. I remember that. And I like, I wanted to eat, but I also couldn't eat. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was not so good. I think that's pretty common. Yeah. yeah. So I, but I just wanted to do some more research, but what actually happened. Well, hang on before we. Okay. Okay. Do you, uh, you've heard about the sodium bicarbonate research, yes. right? So sodium bicarb helps, um, like buffer hydrogen ions when they start accumulating in the blood which can offset some yeah so you're like sweet i'm gonna do this which yeah (laughs) i did and so (laughs) what like and you you hear about the horror stories where people just dump a bunch of baking soda in their their bottle and then they go out there and they like so to to paint the picture this is the equivalent of you remember in like grade school when you would make those volcanoes yeah with the vinegar it's like that yeah so you're eating that um that is happening in your stomach uh, yeah (laughs) Yeah, I, well, I mean, the research is pretty and compelling. The and the tip of the volcano is your anus. The, yeah. Yes, um, <laughs> that's the spout. And white doesn't come out; brown comes out. <laughs> yeah, sometimes foamy. <laughs> Not really. Not if you do it right. Yeah. But yeah, the research is there, and it it makes sense. And so I was like, well, I'm gonna experiment with this. And so I remember this was like a couple, maybe like six weeks, eight weeks before the half. I started just putting like the tiniest amount because the recommended dose range is huge. And I think it does depend somewhat on your tolerance for it. But every time I would do it and then I would drink my, you know, pre-run beverage that now had sodium bicarbonate in it. And I would go out there and I would just be, I'd be running and I'd be like, Oh God, I hope it doesn't happen. So then I like, I wonder if it, you know, the benefits potentially are offset by the fear of being yeah. six kilometers away from your car and having to, you know. A true brownout. True, true brownout. But it never happened. 
Uh, whether or not it worked for me, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure it did something. Okay, but what I really wanted to talk about was, so I drive our little truck. It's quite old. Meredith never drives it. She, she doesn't like it. But I love driving it. And so today I get in and there's an eighth of a tank. And I was like, perfect. Ooh. That should be just enough for Your like fault. 20 to 30 minutes of driving, which mm-hmm. is, it's about 10 to 15 there, 10 to 15 back. And I didn't bring my credit card or anything because oh, I, I don't like leaving that stuff in the car just mm-hmm. in case someone breaks in. Yeah. Um, so I was like, but I'll, I'll be fine. Like yeah, a quarter of a tank. What could go wrong? <laughs> so I get in the car after my run and I turn on the heat and I'm on my phone and I look up and I'm like, oh God. Oh, out of gas. Out of gas. Super Not out of gas. actually out of gas. The light's gone on. And I'm the type of person, and I believe there's two types of people in this world. There's the type of person who panics when the like fill your tank is empty, light comes on. And then the type of person who's like, I got lots of gas. Yeah, like two gallons. Two gallons. That's like forty kilometers. And so you're that person you're the second person. I'm the panicker. So first thing I do is like turn off the heat. Cause I'm like, I can't be using gas for that. Wait, Alex. <laughs> Alex, just, just <laughs> okay, go on. It still uses Alex, energy. It doesn't. <laughs> it uses the battery. Okay. Air conditioning does use gas. And what do you think fuels the battery? <laughs> oh my God. I'm just joking with you. So anyways, I was, I kept, I kept the heat on, of course, cause I'm like, <laughs> it uses the battery, not the gas. Don't be ridiculous. Okay, okay. So I, I stayed warm. Um, that was number one. <laughs> first things first, stay warm. Because if you do run out of gas, you want the warmth to carry you through for as long as possible when you have to get out of your car and walk to a gas station. Did you do that thing that I told you to do, which is put emergency wintertime gloves in your car? I had gloves on from running. Oh, you had your running gloves? Yeah, yeah so I was I was okay, but I knew... That it would get, it was going to be, I was probably going to be on fumes coming into the, the garage. Just throw a neutral and coast. So I did all of the things that I've been told to do when you're low on gas and that's don't play any music. Right. Yeah, obviously. And go below the speed limit uh-huh. and follow closely behind big trucks. Yeah. So you're in the, you're in the, uh, you're in the, you're drafting. S- the slip, the slipstream. In fact, if you get close enough. You don't even have, if you can let off the if gas. I the tried to latch on you. my front to the back of a, oh, smart. a truck, yeah, the but it, I couldn't quite get it. Yeah. Um, but I did make it home, home just in the nick of time. Just like. But it was, it was panic inducing. In the garage. Yeah. 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 I'm actually not the second person. I'm like kind of in you the are because i'll be like meredith oh god the light just went on and you're like we're fine well yeah because we're like we're out and about and in the audi it says how many kilometers you have until the tank runs out and i'm not going to run it like all the way out because it's not good for your fuel injectors and spark plugs you know of course you know what those are of course and you don't want the dregs of your gas tank going through your fuel injectors why alex i mean <laughs> Obviously, those are it, just ridiculous questions. Of course, I know the answer yeah, to them. Yeah, it's like they're so obvious. Don't put it's me rhetorical. in that position. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was insulting. Of course, you know. Of course, you know it clogs the system up, and it's not very good for your engine. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, 
I would say I'm in between one and two and that I understand logic and engines well enough and fuel combustion and I can take a healthy amount of risk without pushing it because mm-hmm. I don't want to damage the engine. But mm-hmm. I also am not a panicky person. Just not me. But it is you. I bet your heart rate was like 120 on the way home. <laughs> it was. If you'd have left your Garmin on, it would have recorded it the actually, workout. So sometimes on the truck, the light comes on, but then it goes off again. Well, yeah, it, it goes off if you are in the truck and you just like slosh shake it, it. Slosh just it around. shake it back and forth. One time I parked, um, I parked, uh, my old blazer. You remember? Cause you had a Jimmy. Yeah. We had the same car. Uh, I, I had a swim both, meet. Both air conditioning went out. Went out. I thought which... I was going <laughs> to, I thought I was going to meet my end in that car when I was, I got stuck in like a wreck, like traffic from a wreck in July. I was like, this is, this is it. This is how I did. Is that the same time you peed in a blender bottle? No, but we can tell, we can tell that score. Just wait a minute. I'll okay. Get to that. Sorry. No, but the blazer I parked, I had a, there was like a swim meet, uh, downtown in Greensboro and the parking was outside and it was totally full. And so I parked along with a bunch of other cars sort of on a downhill incline. And I wasn't, I wasn't super low on gas, like a quarter of a tank. Like the light wasn't on, not a concerningly low amount of gas, but apparently in the blazer, the gas tank, the, um, the whatever. Sensor? No, not sensor. It drained to the back. And so when I was parking downhill, all the gas was in the front of the tank. Mm. So essentially it ran the it car to gas because it didn't have any gas to, yeah. Huh. Um, so that was, that wasn't great. So we had to like roll it down the hill until it was flat and then turn on and drive back up the hill Interesting. Thank for four wheel drive. But yeah, it's kind of funny. I'm looking out the window right now and it looks like it's, it's like thunderstorm looking clouds, but it's cold and there's snow. And then it reminded me that North Carolina is getting a bunch of snow this weekend. They got a bunch last weekend and they're getting more this weekend. And by a bunch, I mean four inches, like nothing, but it really has an impact on that area because they don't have the infrastructure to deal with it and people lose their minds. And the story, I guess, um, that we can tell is in 2013 or 14, there was this big, really big snow and ice storm. And if you Google search snowpocalypse Raleigh, uh, it'll bring up some images of Highway 70 with like all of these cars and there's like fire going in the background. And that's the road that I was stuck on. And I was at work which was, if you know anything about that area, I used to work in RTP, which is kind of in Durham. And it was like, it started to snow. Um, and I was like, oh, I should probably leave. Uh, I had everything done. I was like, I probably, probably should go home um, just before the roads get really bad. And then, so I, I get in my car in the parking deck, start driving home. And like, the further I get, the further east I go, the worse the snow gets. It just gets, it's snowing heavier. There's more accumulating. I turn off of 540 onto highway 70 and it's just like a parking lot like just completely stopped and at this point i think i had maybe like eight miles to go before i turned off and headed towards my house and i was on stuck on highway 70 it kept getting worse and worse and worse i ended up sitting there for like three hours and of course before i left work what did i do i chugged a big bottle of water and so i was sitting in my car like oh my god oh my god oh my god i have to pee but it's like you know, it's a busy highway. I can't just like get out and go somewhere cause there's nowhere to go. And so I'm, I'm like in park at this point, no one's moving. 
I have an, a blender bottle sitting next to me. So I roll my window down, dump the blender bottle out. And then I like, you know, look around, right? There's no one there. So I like shimmy my pants down <laughs> and start peeing in this blender bottle. And then of course, as soon as I start doing that, this guy's like walking around, like brushing off people's windshields. And I was like, oh no, oh God, oh no. And so I'm like, like, hurry up, hurry up. And so I like finish and like cap it and put it in my like passenger seat about 30 seconds before he got to my car and was like, do you want me to brush your windshield off? And I was like, no, dumbass. I have windshield wipers, but I guess it was a kind gesture. So anyways, was there for like three hours, kind of like made it a little further down the road, turned off. And then, and then you accidentally forgot that you had pee in your blender bottle and took a sip of it. Well, I mean, you can drink urine in a pinch. Like we weren't quite that dire. Okay. But I was getting a little bit thirsty, but there's also snow. So I could have had right. that. It's like toss up, right? Dirty snow, dirty road snow or pee from a, anyways. Um, I got like up, up the top of this hill and then someone stopped me and I was in a Honda fit at the time and like couldn't continue. So then I had to abandon my vehicle, um, and walk like two, two miles home. And the next day I went and got my car. Or maybe it might have been two days later because the next day I I had to go to work. I like had stuff to do. I had sales going, had to go to work. And at the time I also had a, like a 97 Jeep Wrangler, just like a piece of crap, but it was really fun to drive around on the weekends. Didn't have a top though. Um, like I just, I didn't, it had like a bikini top and that was it. And so, um, yeah, it was like 20 or 25 degrees the day after had to go to work. So I like bundled up and got in the Jeep and then I like, I texted one of my coworkers lived kind of close by and I knew he had stuff going and he was basically like, well, can I have a ride? <laughs> and so we're like driving down the highway in this topless Jeep. It's like 20 or 25 degrees outside. Cause we both have to go to work. It was great. It was a good time. I missed that thing. Yeah. The Jeep, not the job. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is why I drive when it's super snowy, but sometimes we don't realize it's going to be super snowy until it's till I'm in the super yeah. snowy weather which is always sort of nerve-wracking yeah but you have to get experience somehow I do I'm still sort of coping with like it, when you're in the south you never ever 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 never ever drive on white if the road is white you're not like do not like stay in the lane that's like brown brown never go on the white because it's icy you have no control over there but in here like in in, in Alberta it's like people just full speed down the white and I'm like, <laughs> and so when you want to pass people, a lot of the times you have to, and it, like, literally I've like started to like veer into the, the white lane and I'm like, Nope, Nope. We're just going to go slow. Did we talk about driving to golden? What? Oh, the, no, we didn't. Yeah. So that recently happened. We were driving out to golden BC, which is about three hours away from Calgary. And we drove out on a Wednesday night after work. So we left at like five, stopped for dinner in Canmore, not knowing that like a storm was coming. So Meredith's driving and we hit Lake Louise and it's like, her like horrible. It is snowing so hard, like huge flakes, heavy, just like unbelievable. The whole road was basically white and Meredith's finger or her knuckles were also white as well. <laughs> so at Lake Louise, I'm like, why don't we switch? I'll drive. And she was like, Sure. I mean, like, I thought I was doing great. Yeah, if you if you really want to. So then I'm driving, and, like, visibility is horrible. Basically, like, you f it felt like you were in a vortex. Well, yeah, because it's not only poor visibility, but 
because it's headlights and it's snow it creates this kind of optical illusion yeah it's like you're driving in sparkles yeah and um and then we get as you get closer to golden it gets like the snow kind of died down but it was super slushy and there was a lot of snow on the road and it was just super sketchy and then you kind of go through these passes where you're kind of like up and down and there's semi trucks driving and the speed limit's like 40. Yeah. But I wasn't paying attention 40 to 40 kilometers an hour, which is slow. Yeah. I wasn't paying attention to the speed cause I'm like just trying to stay on the road. And at one point I was going like 50 and Meredith's passenger seat driving being like, you're over the, st- you're over the speed limit. And then at one point I was like moving lanes to get out of the way so someone could pass and she's not paying attention. And the moment she looks up, I'm just like veering, intentionally veering, but she thinks I'm veering off the road. <laughs> Alex? Resp- Al- Al- Alex? And my response was, don't talk to me. I was like, what? Don't talk to me. Don't open your mouth. <laughs> Yeah, that was tense. It was tense. We usually do a pretty good job. That was tense. Yeah, it was. What? <laughs> uh, you're uh, you're uh, you're about to drive off the road. <laughs> you're in the white. You're you're in like the the grabby snow. We made it, and the next day was a powder day, so it was worth it. But totally. Anyway. Yeah, fun times. Uh, on to the topic. Yeah, which was I think someone i don't remember who requested this but it's actually a great topic and i can't believe we haven't discussed it before and it's kind of the the difference between eating for health and wellness and eating for performance and then where's the overlap is there overlap and who like who does each approach kind of apply to i think it'll be good Mm -hmm. Uh, we work with a lot of people whose goals are simply health and wellness but then obviously we're athletes ourselves and we work with a, a handful more so nowadays endurance athletes, but still a number of CrossFit athletes. And the approach even between those two modalities is quite different. Um, and then people who are, you know, health and wellness focused, but also have the side goal of improving in the gym, which I think is sort of where the confusion can come from. Um, so yeah, I guess let's start it off and maybe you can talk about sort of the, the, pillars and tenets of you know what is healthy eating for most people what what's the priority and then we'll we'll spin off some some side topics on performance and nuance as the goals dictate yeah so I think the way I like to kind of like view this topic is you have like the bones of nutrition or as you like to say like the pillars of good eating um and then, and everyone has to have that regardless of what your goals are. And so for me, or in general, it's like eating an appropriate amount of protein. We can talk about that. Um, eating a variety of fruits and vegetables. And usually like it's like five servings per day is kind of recommended. And then on top of that, like outside of nutrition, it's, there's things like sleep, um, hydration, stress, all the kind of like the basics that are factors in the nutri- what realm of nutrition. Um, but the bones are, the bones are eating, like eating appropriately for your, for your goals, like eating, I guess eating enough Yeah. to support 
your resting metabolic rate, which is just like the amount of calories that you burn sitting down all day on, and then also the amount of activity that you're doing above and beyond that, which can include standing, walking, um, making dinner, walking with your kids, and then also exercise. Yeah. And exercise doesn't, at least for most people who recreationally exercise, exercise doesn't contribute really that much to sort of total energy needs. So when you're looking at, you know, your, your TD, when you, when you consider your energy expenditure for a day as a, like a pie chart and each slice represents, um, you know, where energy needs come from the bulk of that pie, like 60 to 80% of your energy needs per day come from base metabolic rate. So it just comes from the amount of calories we need, like needed to, to run vital processes, to just sit on the couch and do nothing. And then you have on top of that, you know, maybe another 10% for the energy required to digest the food that you eat, because that is, um, you know, an energy expense. And then on top of that, you have activity. And so maybe your daily activity um, contributes 20 to 30%, and then exercises maybe an additional 10. And the thing that happens when people exercise is that they tend to make like compulsory modifications to activity. So the more you exercise, the more likely you are to decrease activity elsewhere in the day. So it kind of works out to be a bit of a balance. And so that's why no matter really what you do for exercise or how long, it kind of still means that the bulk of your needs are coming from base metabolic rate. Yeah. Like um, we posted a while back on why you're not losing weight doing CrossFit. And basically, if you think about it, a CrossFit class is one hour. So that's one hour out of 24 hours of the day. Within the CrossFit class, a lot of the times the actual workout is 10 minutes, maybe 20. Maybe you get like some strength and then a shorter Metcon. So really you're looking at 20 minutes of actual high intensity exercise. Yeah. 20 minutes with in the grand scheme of a day or I guess 100 minutes in the grand scheme of a week, if you're working out five days a week, is really, really not that much. And not that much to tip the scale in terms of calorie needs drastically. I think if someone goes from like being active but not exercising, so not necessarily sedentary but not necessarily training, and then they, they add in CrossFit, a CrossFit class per day, I wouldn't make any recommendations for a change in nutrition based mm-hmm. on the one CrossFit class a day. I think that if everything else remains the same and you're doing a good job with nutrition across the board, then keep doing that. Yeah. And don't worry about the exercise. You'll well, adapt to that. What will happen over the next five, 10 years is with the CrossFit, as long as it's the right stimulus, you'll slowly gain muscle mass if you're eating appropriately which burns more calories at rest. Your metabolic rate is higher, so you need more. Even though you might still only be exercising the same amount. It's just, it's kind of like your body is, is, is there, its needs is, are changing. Yeah, lean body mass is really the only thing that you can... It's a metabolic currency. Yeah, and it's the only thing that you have control over that affects your base metabolic rate. 
So mm-hmm. as lean body mass increases because you're <clears throat> exercising, your calorie needs at rest increase. So that slice of the pie, the pie gets bigger. Yeah. So the way I see it, and then we can branch off into the more specifics, is if you have somebody who's simply maybe doing, uh, running 20 kilometers a week or doing four or five CrossFit classes a week and wants to, and it, you know, just wants to be healthy um, and active and living, ha- living a vital life, the bones of their nutrition, it's, it's really just the s- simple basics that we all know about. It's eat, like I said, eating a variety of fruits and vegetables, meats, getting in vitamins and minerals, fiber, water intake, and then, yeah, just eating enough for your goals. It's exactly the same thing for high-performance athletes. The difference is what goes on top of that for high-performance athletes. There's, it's like, the, the, like I said, the bones of them are the same, there's just, you add when there's, when you're eating for performance. Yeah. And so the way I like to think of it is like, it, it doesn't benefit someone who has the goal of health and wellness to eat like an athlete, even if they are training and it doesn't necessarily benefit an athlete to eat like their sole goal is health and wellness because you just can't like the, the, the trick when you're an athlete and when you have athletic goals and you are training enough to where you're pushing your energy needs up. Um, it's difficult to meet those energy needs from very high quality whole foods. Yeah. And then conversely, let's just take 2000 calories, which is the average recommended uh, calorie intake for Americans for female. Yeah. There aren't enough calories to be using those calories on things like Gatorade or, you know, bowls of cereal things that you see maybe athletes eating or like a bunch of protein powder, like these supplemental um, items while still being able to get in, you know, fruit and vegetables and a variety of like meats and fish and stuff like that. Yeah. And the best way to think about it is, um, you know, to control body weight, you like the most important thing is calories and then to control body composition, the next next most important thing is macronutrient breakdown. And then next to that is food quality. And that's kind of where I like to stop. Like on top of food quality, you have timing and supplements and those things might, might be important to an athlete, but aren't typically that important to someone who isn't training super hard. The issue is when you, and and the reason why macros, it's a double edged sword. If you track macros, because can you make most anything fit into your diet? Yeah, you can. Um, if you're sacrificing food quality for food inclusion, it becomes very difficult to meet your calorie goals. It becomes a little too easy to overeat because the things that like when you, when you start sacrificing quality for inclusion um, or eating more palatable items, the calorie density goes up, they become less filling to eat. And so it's likely that you're just going to be less satisfied overall with your diet. And then that's going to leave you feeling um, hungry and more at risk of overeating. Even even if you're overeating high-quality foods, like that's kind of the thing is you can get to the end of the day and think like, crap, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat, you know, some protein and rice or 
whatever's in your fridge that is quote unquote high high quality, but it might still be in excess of your calorie need. So if you do that for long enough, then now you're looking at kind of slow and gradual weight gain. And so that's, you know, for health, kind of the, the focus in my opinion should be on mostly high quality foods, not only as a way to make sure that you're meeting, um, micronutrient goals. So you're getting in, you know, the vitamins and minerals that you need to function at a high level, but also as a way to more easily control calorie intake across the day. Yeah. And if you're doing like, if it fits your macros and you're fitting your macros with low quality items, you're really going to struggle to hit specifically protein Mm -hmm. because there's not a lot of like fast foods or, um, you know, highly palatable items that are high in protein and moderate in fat and carbs. Like, yeah, you can go to McDonald's and order a Big Mac and there's probably 20, at least 20 to 30 grams of protein in there because it's beef, but there's also like 30 to 40 grams of fat. Yeah. So in order to hit your protein, you're going to have to eat, let's just take that specific food item, for example, four of those to hit protein. Then your fat is just through absolutely through the roof and also your calories are too. Yeah. So you kind of are forced macros force you to go like, okay, I need to have some chicken thigh or chicken breast or fish or something that's lower calorie, lower in fat, high in protein. Yes. Um, and that just tends to be higher quality. And then adding fruits and vegetables can help you increase volume without calories shooting through the roof as well. Yes. And that's the kind of the benefit of macros, I think for, normal people or people who are new to quantifying their diet. Um, it really goes to build awareness over time. And I have a, like a relatively new client and, you know, they're trying to kind of drastically change their eating habits because they're unhappy with where that has left them from a physical standpoint. And the other day, um, you know, we're working on increasing the size of their breakfast from, basically non-existent to around 700 calories, which to them was mind blowing. They're like, what do you mean you want me to eat a 700 calorie breakfast? It's like, well, once you do a 700 calorie breakfast, that's balanced because like the research shows, and it's very clear that people who, who do that and they get in, you know, 30% of their intake and they get 30 to 40 grams of protein in with breakfast tend to not really overeat later in the day. Um, so that's kind of what we're working on. And then we were discussing that and they mentioned, well, I'm, you know, I'm not, drinking in January, but I am going out with some friends this evening for chicken wings. And I was doing some research and I found out that one chicken wing has a hundred calories in it. And then they were like, so you're telling me that 12, like if I go eat 12 chicken wings, that's going to be 1200 calories. And I was like, yeah. And it's mostly fat. Like you might think chicken wing and think, well, at least it's protein, but it's not, they actually have more fat than protein. And so I think that like, that was just kind of eye opening for that person. And that's, that's where the value is for macros. It's not necessarily like being perfect all the time and nailing your calories and nailing macros and, you know, doing things to a T it's building awareness. So that even if you, someone like that in a year stops tracking macros, they can look at a plate of chicken wings and probably go, huh, that doesn't really fit in with my daily goal. So I'm going to get the grilled chicken bites instead. Um, I had that, I had a moment like that just the other day. 
with Ben and Jerry's yeah. ice cream. So like I don't <clears throat> the only time I ever eat ice cream is at a restaurant. And usually it's a it's a dinner where I don't track. It's just one of those those meals where I kind of like prepare for it in the day and then um I can enjoy it without worrying about the macros on it. And usually we get like a dessert. I usually go for um something chocolate molten lava cake with a side of vanilla ice cream and that's really again the only time I have like true ice cream um and the other day I was at the store and I bought two pints of Ben and Jerry's half-baked one for me and one for Meredith why did you do that because I don't like sharing like we don't scoop out ice cream and put it in a bowl and sit in front of the tv and watch it like I'm I'm like a picker when it comes to treats like M&Ms like I'll never sit down and eat a whole pack of M&Ms but I'll take a, an M&M here and there when I'm in the pantry. Like, that's just how I like to enjoy them. So I wanted to have our own so that we could work at our own pace. And also Meredith tends to dig for the treasures. I like to dig for and the And so like, bars. I feel rushed to get to the treasures before her and end up eating too much. It's a whole thing. It's happened before. So anyways, I buy this Ben and Jerry's and I wasn't like weighing and measuring it. So I thought, okay, well, if, if I'm eating, if it's taking me like seven days to get through, I would divide the n- total number of calories in the pint by seven and just have that as what I enter. Close enough for my goals. And I, I go on the internet and I'm like, pint of Jerry's ice cream. And I was like, oh, and it says approximately 1,200 calories per pint. And so I go to the pint and I'm looking at it and I'm like, half half of a cup of Ben and Jerry's ice cream is 300 calories. Yeah. And there's only four servings in the pint. Yeah. There's two cups of ice cream. It's extremely dense. And that is, it is easy, easy to eat half a pint without even 600 calories. It's it just it, like, I guess, again, like it's, it's fine if you want to sit there and have 600 calories of ice cream. Some people do. Sometimes like I enjoy probably 600 calories of dessert, but like if you're eating that much every day and you have no idea and you don't think it's that much or you have no concept of calories or fat or the way that like foods kind of like impact your body composition or body weight. Yeah. That's how it gets you. And it's the same thing. I've had the same, same things with how much is in like a hot dog how much fat yes how many calories yeah so yeah i think there's a there's definitely it brings a level of awareness which is i think really important yeah it doesn't need to be disordered you can still absolutely enjoy those foods but it's kind of like spending money it's like you don't spend money without knowing how much you're paying because you have to be balancing your checkbook or your your bank account well i mean like you say that but there are a lot of people who do spend money without really but then they end up in debt debt and that's exactly the same thing as not exactly the same thing but a good parallel to being overweight yeah you know i mean there are other emotional things that come into play with weight and spending money and stuff like that but from like in simplistic terms yeah and it kind of goes back to the like sort of the instant gratification kind of um line of thought and I've always wondered like is there a correlation to like credit card debt and spending habits and eating habits I've always wondered if that's been looked into I don't think it has but maybe someone will at some point because I think it would be interesting so I guess moving on how 
does eating for performance differ than eating for health and wellness? Yeah. So I guess we can kind of divide this into two sort of subtopics. So the first one would be eating for performance in a sport like CrossFit, which doesn't really have much of an off season people like it's a pretty demanding way to train, even if you're not competing. Um, and it sort of requires, at least if you're looking to advance in the next level, it does require some nuance with nutrition. Um, so things that are important for athletes that are not typically important for other people, um, or people who are non-athletes are not really training. I think, and who, who are we talking about in terms of CrossFit? Um, like, like at what point, like how many hours in a week are you training? Like what events are you going to? Yeah. Like how good do you have to be? How much muscle mass do you have to have to, to qualify as performance-based athlete? I would say a performance-based athlete is probably someone who is at or at least very close to their body composition goals, who does not have a sub-goal of weight loss. So I think that that changes the approach entirely. Um. So without the sub-goal of weight loss, it, it is someone who, um, has a relatively high lean body mass, trains probably mm, seven hours or more a week, seven to 10 hours or more like a week. Like actual training, not seven hours of CrossFit class. Yes, correct. Seven to 10 hours or more. Um, has a, the specific goal of improving in the sport their sport, whether it's CrossFit or something other, some other strength and conditioning sport. Um, and that's it. It can be someone who's, who's intermediate and looking to become advanced. It can be someone who's advanced looking to become elite. It's just, it's sort it's, it, it's a fairly broad category to be so honest. You don't need to be a CrossFit games athlete. No, you don't. Mm -hmm. You just, you need to meet certain prerequisites and have an interest in improving. So I think that's kind of the category and things that are important to those people who, um, that, that aren't necessarily that important for non-athletes or people who don't train would be, um, I guess to start kind of more towards the base timing of nutrients. Um, so I don't really, I don't believe really in protein timing. The science doesn't support that protein timing is really all that important at all. Most of the research that says post-workout protein is beneficial fails to control for daily protein intake. So in, in those studies where, where the researchers see a positive result or positive correlation in maybe muscle mass and post-workout protein, uh, you see the same type of correlation when you control for that protein across the day. So it might be that that post-workout protein shake is just bumping that person up closer to the minimum protein intake for the specific goal of maximized pro like muscle protein synthesis. So I think that steady protein intake across the day is fine for both people who have athletic goals and those who do not. Um, carbohydrate intake, I think, becomes more important. Um, timing, specifically. So post-workout carbohydrate timing, I think, is important whether you're training uh, one time or two times a day if you're looking to maximize recovery. And that's just because the body at that point is sort of primed um, to take up glucose and replenish, replenish glycogen stores. So that's, that's important. Um, the second thing that is important, I think is you can kind of piggyback on that post-workout. So when you think about post-workout, 
the post-workout window of gains, which isn't really a thing, but we'll call it that because that's what people know. Um, that's really, it's like 90 to 90 minutes to 120 minutes. So up to two hours post-workout, you have a window of time where your body is primed to uptake like all nutrients, not just carbohydrates, but also it's a, that's a great period of time to get in, um, you know, after your post-workout carb shake or whatever, that's a good time to get in vegetables and minerals and things that are a little bit high, higher in quality and higher in those micronutrients. And so maybe right after you're done your workout, you have a carb shake within 20 or 30 minutes of that. That's pretty optimal, I think. And then maybe an hour or 90 minutes after that, you would have a meal that's a little bit higher quality. So you have more fiber, you have more vegetables, you have things that contribute a more diverse micronutrient profile because your body is sort of ready to use those things and to take them up. And then what we kind of see is that about the two hour mark after exercise, you become somewhat insulin resistant. So you want to put a, you want to pause sort of food intake at about the two hour mark and give that a break for a couple of hours and then resume normal eating maybe, you know, three hours or so, three and a half hours after you finish your workout. So that's kind of, that's post-workout timing. That is somewhat important. Yep. Um, you know, with CrossFit athletes specifically, because the intensity and the volume is so high, you generally see increased needs for carbohydrates. So someone who is, um, not doing a lot of training might suffice on 200 grams of carbs per day, which is pretty normal and doable, I think. And then I think once you sort of push training volume up, now we need three to 400 grams of carbohydrates per day. That's fairly normal. Yeah, I think protein, it's, I guess it's worth mentioning that protein needs for somebody who is a recreational CrossFitter and then somebody who is striving for performance in the sport of CrossFit, protein needs are about the same. Yeah, that's right. It's why I... what, what varies is carbs, as you mentioned. Yep. Yeah. So protein doesn't like, protein needs don't go up. You don't need to eat more than one gram per pound body weight, regardless of what your training is. You can, but it's not necessary. Um, per goal body weight. Yes. Yeah. The carb needs go up. And so what we see is it's very difficult to consume a large amount of carbohydrates from complex carb sources. And so this is kind of where we see some lower quality items come into the diet that are totally appropriate for athletes because it facilitates the goal of increasing overall calorie intake, specifically carb intake without the discomfort that comes from trying to do that by eating complex carbohydrates. And the other caveat with that is if you do manage to do that with complex carbohydrates, it's very likely your fiber is going to be at a level that impacts the availability and absorption of the carbs that you are eating. So when fiber starts to creep up into that, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 grams per day range, you're impacting, like things are basically, they're moving too quickly through your, through your, uh, digestive tract to be properly absorbed. So your absorption goes down. So you might be, you know, in theory eating 350 grams of carbs, but in reality, you're only absorbing 200, 250 grams of those. So it's sort of like a, a waste and uncomfortable for most people. It's very hard to do that. And you're probably going to struggle to digest in between sessions or before sessions, things like that. Yeah. So I think it's pretty common, at least in CrossFit, to have two sessions per day. Um, 
in the way that at least I, and you might have a different approach, but the way that I recommend eating for those two sessions is to at least uh, like for the morning one, have a post-workout protein and carbohydrate shake. And the protein shake there is not necessarily to take advantage of a window of time. It's just much like you're going to have to do a shake there to get protein in and not have an upset stomach for your second session, most likely. So protein and carb shake, maybe a small meal and then prioritize the bigger meal um, after the second session of the day, which for a lot of people does tend to be the more like cardiovascular session. So a little bit more demanding from a like glycolytic standpoint. Is that your recommendation as well? Yeah. I think it's important to note with these timing recommendations that while they are ideal from a physiological standpoint, they might not be ideal for the specific person. Yeah. And same goes for pre-workout. You know, there are some people who wake up in the morning and eating makes them feel nauseous. So while we always suggest eating something before a workout, especially if it's something that's high intensity, um, if that person's workout is going to be compromised by feeling nauseous the entire time because they had a banana when they first woke up, then it's not ideal for them. And it actually takes away from what the banana might provide Yeah, in terms of, um, you know, energy and um, glycogen availability. So I guess all of these recommendations, while like it's definitely worth giving them a try, if something doesn't work for you for a specific reason, don't be like forcing it into your schedule. Right. Sometimes you have people who train at like 6 or 7 p.m. and so they finish at 8 um, or even 8.39 and it's difficult for them to do the post-workout protein and carbs and then another meal like an hour later and then go to bed at a reasonable hour. So you kind of have to shuffle some things around, test some things out, sometimes eating a full dinner before and then kind of like beefing up the post-workout shake and then going to bed yep. um, can be a, a good alternative. But that's just an example of how you can kind of manipulate some of these um, protocols a little bit to make sure that they're working within your means and your schedule. Yeah, exactly. And the way your body is. The best thing is only the best thing if it's something that you can do. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then the second best thing is now the best thing. Yeah. And there's usually, there are still manipulations that can be made to like optimize what you are comfortable doing. Yeah. I remember it took me a solid probably eight to 12 weeks to figure out what and when I like to eat before long runs. Like it's, it does require a bit of um, self-experimentation and like being honest with yeah, this is doable or no, this is not doable or I don't like it for whatever reason and being okay doing something that's a little bit different than might be, you know, recommended on paper or something like that. Yeah. And then I, we've definitely discussed this before, but post-workout, we usually recommend whey protein. It's um, one of the most bioavailable proteins. Um, it's cheapest and it tastes the best, but there are a lot of other like vegan sources or beef-based protein powders that you can buy on the market, yep. which if you have struggle digesting whey or whey gives you the toots or whatever it is, the um, toots. there's other options. So whey gives you, yeah. The toots. Um, for carbs, uh, we usually recommend highly branched cyclic dextrin and yep. then, um, and that's again for more performance based, based athletes. Um, for my more recreational clients, I usually recommend that they have, a banana post-workout because it's 
I've got a lot of good vitamins and minerals. It fills you up and it kind of gets you home before you have that big meal. Yeah. Lunch or dinner or whatever it may be. And some nuance that comes into play when you're dealing with someone who maybe has performance goals, but also has the, the side goal of weight loss. And I, you know, I said that that does sort of change the approach is that for those people, I, I don't, I never recommend a shake after a, a workout. I recommend whole foods only. And though, even though it's, it takes a little bit longer to digest those things and they're not quite as optimal, it helps, um, really helps with satiety and hunger and, you know, serves the secondary goal as well as the primary goal. Mm-hmm. So performance, like you, you take a hit on, you know, no, this isn't the best, but it's also, it is the best for your secondary goal and it's still okay for your primary goal. So that's kind of where you have to, to weigh the pros and cons of different approaches. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then performance based in endurance. Yeah. So endurance sports are a little different. Most people in endurance are, they follow, they periodize a little bit more with their training. So they have, there's a bit more of an, an in season and out of season. Um, meaning there's like kind of race season and then there's training season. And so, you know, for, for endurance, for Ironman, for half Ironman, for marathon, and then even half marathon for some people, intra race carbohydrate intake is important. And that just, it's, it's because the events are so long that you're just gonna, you're going to burn through your stored, uh, glycogen store glucose in about two hours. Um, I think most people can store between 300 and 500 grams of glycogen in their body. Um, and then you're, you know, you're burning probably around, um, what do we decide it was around 700 calories per hour. So around 175 grams of glycogen per hour. So you can kind of math that out and see how that goes if you were to not supplement. So um, for endurance, you're looking like usually we look to supplement 60 to 90 grams per hour of carbohydrates. Um, and that is not something that you can just jump into. No, because <laughs> they will give you, you will get a brownout. Yeah. As it's discussed. They're very like most of the gels and the gummies and the concentrated carbohydrate sources are, yeah, they're very concentrated. And so they're a little bit rough on the stomach, especially if you don't take in the proper amount of, of water. Um, cause then what happens is your body, it's like, Oh, look at this carbohydrate bolus that I just got. Well, like carbohydrate, it needs water <laughs> yeah. to get into the bloodstream. And if you don't have water in your stomach or you haven't consumed it, well, guess what? Like now your body's like, well, we'll just pull water out of the intestines and out of the muscles and out of tissues and into the GI system so that we have, we can process this thing. And that that's what leads to discomfort and GI distress and that kind of thing. I think um, we, we discussed a lot of this in episode 45 Yeah, around my marathon, mm-hmm. um, if you want more detail on it as well. Yeah. Um, I think like it's important to note for, because I have a few people who train for marathons and endurance-related sports, and there's like, um, there's more adjusting within weeks as well. Yeah. If you look at a CrossFit athlete, the majority of their training is going to be the same across days. So you're looking at probably on the upper level, like three to four hours in the gym for uh, maybe a CrossFit Games athlete and then one to two for a more, um, you know, 
you know, somebody who has a full-time job or something, but yeah. you're, you're not, you're not seeing like a Tuesday where you do 45 minutes and then Saturday you're doing four hours, which is sometimes the discrepancy you get in training volume with, a an endurance athlete. Yeah. You might have, I have a, I had a client who recently ran a 100 miler and he would run like one hour, four days a week in the week. And then his weekend days were like five or six hours. So his calorie intake was quite different o- over the weekend. Yep. Um, and that, that was partially the amount of intro workout carbs he was consuming, but like Thursday, Friday was a big c- calorie boost for carb loading. And then Saturday, Sunday were big days because he needed to support the training on the Saturday and then also the recovery going into Sunday. Um, but that certainly didn't look this, his calorie intake was not the same on a Saturday than it was on a Tuesday. Right. Um, and you know, it's the same for, for me running a marathon. Like there are days where I'm running three hours. And so I'm, I'm eating a lot more calories on a day like that or the day after yeah. than I would on a Tuesday where I only run eight kilometers. You're just not seeing that as much with CrossFit games athletes or CrossFit athletes. Yep. Yeah. So it requires a bit more manipulation on a day to day or week to week. Um, and then to go back just quickly to the CrossFit athletes, um, Intro workout carbs are not off the table for CrossFit athletes as well. Mm-hmm. If you have like really big sessions and you, you go like lifting into, especially if you're doing one big session that can last over two hours or even 90 minutes, you do like heavy lifting, um, squats, snatch, which are tough on the, the central nervous system. And then you're going into maybe some gymnastics or a Metcon. And then you have core and accessory after having some carbs, maybe during the lifting or after the lifting going into the Metcon can be really beneficial. Um, it's also helpful for somebody who just eat, is a big eater and burns through calories a lot. Mm-hmm. Having some um, liquid carbs or like an applesauce in the middle of a session. I love that applesauce is what you... What I have I have two mind. clients who love applesauce. I hate applesauce. And both of those are both of those people recently have added in intra-workout carbs yeah. into their CrossFit sessions and they're feeling, they feel amazing. Yeah. It makes a big difference. Yeah. Mentally, it, it makes a big difference too. Like having a sip of Gatorade in the middle of a long workout. There's some some research that shows because your that your taste buds they signal to the brain that glycogen is on the way. is on the way. Yeah, and so you can boost your output. It because yeah because you're expecting energy coming in. So it's like okay, we can expend some more energy. Yeah. So even, even swishing it. Oh, I think that's actually in the your research mouth. is not, it's not even, sip. yeah, it's not taking it in. Yeah. It's even just like tasting the carbs and the sugar can yeah. signal to your brain that energy is coming, You're tricking it obviously, but yeah. obviously actually drinking the Gatorade is more beneficial, mm-hmm. but yeah, anybody, I have an, a client who's, who's training for a high rocks and she's doing longer workouts, like 40 minutes. Yep. And we're starting to implement some intra-workout carbs in there for her as well. Yeah. can be helpful. Yep. Um, but back to the kind of periodization that goes along with the training. Um, periodized ni- nutrition is not something that's super common in CrossFit. And all that means is you, you change your nutritional ac- approach across the year. And the reason why a lot of endurance follow endurance athletes do that, um, some, some people do the like train – they try the train low compete high thing, which is when you follow a low carb diet during training and then you up carbohydrate intake around the competition season. Um, that's been disproven, but a lot of athletes still do it. Um, when I think of periodized nutrition for endurance athletes, like all I'm thinking about is increasing the quality of 
carbohydrates specifically during the off season, during training season. And then as you get closer to competition, then you work in kind of the more simple carbs intra race. Um, and I, you know, a big part of that is with endurance athletes specifically, I think they did some gut, like some gut health sampling, some microbiome sampling on elite Ironman athletes and found that they have some of the poorest gut health, like of anyone, which is actually the opposite of what you see in other athletes. Like being fit and working out and being an athlete generally has a positive impact on gut health. But I think when you're taking in so, when you're taking in a disproportionately high amount of carbohydrates, and then even within that, um, you know, a lot of your carbohydrates are coming from extremely refined and simple sources, which they have to, if they're intra workout, it just starts to, you're not getting the, the micronutrients that you need. You're not getting in the prebiotics to foster a particularly healthy, um, gut environment. And so that's kind of what I like to see endurance athletes focus on in the off season is more of a, a health promoting gut health promoting, let's eat some fiber and a more diverse variety of carbohydrates and get things feeling good and healthy. And that's going to make training better. And it's going to make you feel better. It's going to increase clarity. And then when it's time to shift back into race mode, now we start pivoting towards the higher carb density, slightly lower quality, more convenient sources that can be taken during training and racing. So that's kind of periodized for endurance athletes. And it's not something that you see, um, yeah, as much in, in CrossFit specifically, but again, CrossFit doesn't have really an in season quite like endurance does. Yeah. And I think for recreational endurance athletes, and by that, I mean really anybody who's not professional. So even like me, you're, you're in season and out of season can vary greatly from somebody else, depending on what races you decide to run. Yes. And yeah. you're in season and off season. It can switch on and off every you know, six months, it's not necessarily based on a year yeah. or like within the year you have one off season, one on season. Yeah. It can, ju- you can jump around quite a bit, but yeah. Um, the last thing I, I wanted to touch on, uh, was, you know, where the overlap is and sort of where the you know, kind of this, there's this interesting paradox that occurs with athletes and with non-athletes and specifically what, um, being active and what fitness and exercise can do to the appetite and then also to the metabolism. So, um, being active and working out has been shown to be kind of the biggest predictor of weight management, weight loss management, specifically people who set out to lose weight and then are successful in keeping it off. It's not, um, what they found is it's, it's, the biggest predictor is not necessarily what is in the diet or what type of diet is followed. It's does the person exercise or not. And the reason for that's that, to maintain weight loss, that's to maintain weight loss. Um, and there's probably a few reasons for that. Um, not to lose weight, not to lose weight. Yeah. Lose losing weight. Weight loss is most dependent on the diet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maintaining is, is not necessarily dependent is the wrong word. It correlates with exercise. And the reason for that. Um, it's probably somewhat behavioral and that is people who exercise and are, are bothered to exercise every day, um, probably subconsciously make alterations in other areas of their life. So it's kind of the domino effect effect, which we've talked about. 
someone who exercises is more likely to, you know, select higher quality, healthier food options, which is easier to control calorie intake. Um, the second thing that researchers believe is that weight loss or, uh, sorry, um, exercise attenuates hunger signals. And so, you know, if you're exercising and working out, it's difficult and less likely that you will experience extreme amounts of hunger. Like you just, you're not going to get hungry during a workout unless you're really, really hungry. Um, and so it's, it's obviously if you're working out for an hour or 90 minutes a day, even if that is doing a CrossFit class, you know, you can't, number one, can't eat cause you're not in a place with food, but also you don't want to eat. The same thing is observed with athletes. And so this is tricky because you have a, a population of people who need to eat more, who need to increase their intake because their, um, their training demands it. And yet they sometimes have appetite and hunger limitations and issues because of the training that they're doing. So again, that's kind of where having some lower quality, higher density like options in the diet can be beneficial just from a calorie intake standpoint. And then on the flip side of that, you have people who don't exercise and they need to limit their calorie intake to manage their body weight and health. And because they don't exercise, they're more likely to experience hunger across the day. So by simply not exercising and not being active, you like you're forcing yourself into f- to fighting off hunger signals more frequently and not fighting off like restricting or being a martyr with it. It's just it's a fact that like activity attenuates hunger. And if you're less active, you're going to be hungry more often. Yeah, that kind of goes to the the eating less on your rest days argument, which we're against um, because most most people and this is not the truth for everybody will because of what Meredith said will feel hungrier on their rest days so trying to reduce calories to match the amount of exercise that you're expending on that specific day doesn't really make sense from even just like a mental standpoint but also from a physiological standpoint um you need you know rest days are just that it's for recovery it's for rest it's for repair and so limiting calories on those days isn't the best plan you're going to go into the day after your rest day in almost uh i I not necessarily like a calorie deficit like you could but you're just you're not going to be optimizing the rest and recovery if you're not you know eating enough to optimize that i guess if anything on rest days maybe you like change up the macronutrient ratio a bit it's not unheard of to bump fats up a little bit on rest days, but total calories should definitely not go down on those days. Yeah. Just to go back, I was thinking, I think I used glycogen in replace of glucose a couple times there. But just to clarify, uh, gl- glucose is sugar in the bloodstream that your body uses for energy. And glycogen is the stored form of energy. So if you're eating something that's glucose and not necessarily glycogen in that specific moment. You're fired. <laughs> Get out. You mean you can't? Anyways, I'm sure someone's sitting there and like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. You can't eat glycogen, <laughs> dummy. You f- idiot. I guarantee there's God. one person out there. Damn it. <laughs> I do hate that. I hate when I, when I don't they catch prob- it. That person is probably long gone. They, they And they're not listening. even going to hear that clarification. They're like, I'm unfollowing them. I hate them. They're big freaking idiots. 
they have no idea what they're talking about. Look at Ivy. Even Ivy's pissed off. She yeah, did. she was like, how dare you? You don't know the difference between glycogen and glucose. I almost made Meredith go back and edit every single thing where it said I said glycogen to glucose. It'd be like me talking and saying, and then you can, you know, you want to replenish that glucose. <laughs> <laughs> After workout, you want to make sure you eat glucose. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i like maybe we do that it sounds kind of fun glucose um, yeah um yeah i don't uh i don't know where we're going after that the other thing that's interesting and this is this is going to be a bit of a sidebar i don't know it's an interesting sidebar is that as you um as you become more active as you work out more um you, your body becomes more efficient at other metabolic processes, or at least that's kind of what we're beginning to understand and observe. And this is interesting. This guy, uh, Herman Ponser, who's a scientist. I think he's, he's in, I think he's at Duke actually. He went and observed the Hadza tribes men. So it's this hunter gatherer tribe in Africa. And, um, measured their metabolic rate, used doubly labeled water, like very thorough in the way that it was measured. And he found that these, these hunter gatherers who are super active, way more active than, um, modern Europeans or Americans. And on paper, if you were to look at these guys and what they do during the day, you'd think, Oh, they, they probably burn 4,000 calories a day. Um, they don't, they burn around 2,400 calories a day. They burn about the same amount as a sedentary American or Westerner, which is interesting. And so then he he did more research and has kind of come up with this theory that, you know, we observe. That part of information just blew Ivy's head off. Did it? Look at her. She's like, what do you She's mean? astounded. I know. It's astounding. It, it, it is quite. So what they kind of, what they've they've come up with is this theory that's called the constrained energy theory and what it means is that so typically when when we think of activity and when we think of exercise and when we conceptualize it in the way that say uh you know a whoop does or a fitbit does or even other nutrition coaches and companies uh when they look at athletes and they say well this person works out for four hours a day so their energy needs it's like a linear increase in energy which kind of like intuitively makes sense the more you do uh, the bigger your energy need pie becomes, the bigger the slice of uh, your energy needs come from activity. So yeah, of course, like it would, it demands a linear increase in intake. And what is actually more likely to be the case is this constrained energy model, which is if you are, if you like graphs, which I like graphs, it kind of, um, you know, there's an increase in energy. And then as you approach an energy threshold, it becomes asymptotic to that energy threshold. So the graph increases and then starts to de- like flatten out. And so in theory, even if more of your energy needs are coming from exercise and activity, your body would make compulsory adjustments and downregulate processes and become more efficient in the, the metabolic things that are running in the background. So instead of expending, let's say 1500 calories per day, running metabolic processes in the background, as your energy level, as your energy output increases with activity, that number goes down to maybe 1300 calories per day. 
So you're expending less at rest. You're becoming more metabolically efficient in some ways. And so then that's why you don't see a linear increase in caloric needs. You see a somewhat asymptotic increase in caloric needs, which makes sense because we talk to athletes all the time and ourselves even, um, where we, they don't consume calories based on a linear increase because either they don't want to, or they don't need to. Why don't they need to? Well, it might be because they are just more efficient in ways that people who don't exercise are, are not. So a non-exercising person is just going to expend more energy on metabolic processes than an exercising person will. Yeah. They also might just be on their feet more also. Well, yeah. And that's, again, that's, that goes to that kind of hunter gatherer data. And that's like, well, to play, play devil's advocate here, because I imagine there are a few people out here thinking the same as me. What about somebody like Michael Phelps, who's, who claims to eat, I don't know what, 7,000. Is that because his he's literally working out and swimming like all of the time and he's mm-hmm. just huge. Well, so like, he claimed how, how to come eat, that like, doesn't apply to him, yeah. somebody like him or does, do you, can you just eat more and you do eat more mm-hmm. when you don't necessarily need to? Yeah. So, um, and then like, we can get into explaining how eating is, can be inflammatory. Yeah. So to go backwards and to answer that question, start at the beginning, Michael Phelps claimed at one point that he was eating 10,000 calories per day. That's since been sort of like, he's walked that back. He wasn't eating 10,000 calories a day. That's a bit of an exaggeration. I eat 52 and a half pancakes with syrup for breakfast. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell, man? Like, how do you swim in a pool? He was still they, eating. A- they say don't eat before swimming. That's and, a topic for another podcast. Yeah, it is. Um, well, he was still eating a lot of food. And so, uh, I mean, his needs are like potentially a great deal. There's probably a genetic component to this. So you, you can't just say like, oh, because the Hadza tribesmen burn 2,400 calories a day only, that is the universal calorie mm-hmm. burn for, you know, all humans ever. They observe the same type of calorie. So they, they've also uh, compared animals in captivity versus animals in the wild and seen the exact same thing occur. So animals in captivity who, um, who are obviously moving around a lot less burn the same amount of calories as that same animal in the wild moving around a lot more. So there supports that theory. Also supports the genetic component to that theory. So Michael Phelps doesn't share genetics necessarily. Um, I mean, he does 99%, but he does, his genes are different than, um, you know, the, the tribesmen of the Hadza. So genetic component probably in play. The other thing that happens when you start eating an exorbitant amount of food is you start expending a lot of energy to, to digest that food. Um, that's the first thing that happens. So maybe that 10% starts to increase, um, to 12%, 15%, even if it stays at 10%, that's yeah. still a lot. Also known as the, therm- the thermal effect of food. Yep. Um, and then the other thing that tends to happen, there's two other things that happen when you increase food intake, um, above and beyond what might be necessary. Um, the second thing that happens is you simply absorb less of what you eat. So again, that kind of, it's like the fiber thing, but because you're eating so much food and it's going through your GI system so fast and your body's like, holy crap, this is a lot of food. I don't need all this food. It just absorbs less from it. Like you're just, you're not going to absorb as much as what you um, are eating versus as soon as you start to drop calories and you see this all the time in people who are struggling with calorie deficits, it's like, yeah, like your body's just going to absorb more of the food that you're eating when you start eating less. It's a natural thing that occurs. And then the third thing is that you, you increase sort of, um, you know, non-exercise movement, fidgeting, um, 
inclined to like you're more inclined to walk take the stairs park towards the back of the parking lot um you're awake you're just like kind of you burn a little bit hotter so you're gonna burn more energy that way so it's there's a lot going on i don't know um, you're gonna fart more energy is released that way you're gonna poop more and that takes energy <laughs> um does michael phelps need a lot like yeah i mean the, the difference between the hadza tribesmen and someone like michael phelps or an athlete like they are not going out into the wild with the sole purpose of maximizing their physical potential mm-hmm. and that's a big difference um you know their base metal metabolic rates are obviously lower their muscle masses while they're very lean lower mm-hmm. so there's a lot of factors that go that create a difference there i think when you know all other things are equal the calorie needs if if michael phelps looks like and does exactly what those guys do probably similar calorie needs good answer that was a test did you i pass pa- you passed sweet barely god um yeah that was that was a lot of i mean if i do say so myself that was a lot of knowledge yeah it's what i think is interesting is there's this big push specifically in crossfit right now um to eat as much as possible eat as much as possible eat 500 600 700 grams of carbs per day just because like you can do it and not gain weight um is it absolutely necessary that someone does that to to be an elite crossfitter i'm i'm not convinced and you know there is like you said a big inflammatory cost to eating well you've been in that specific situation yes yeah before the games in 2018 um I was eating my face off. I like, and it was like force feeding situation. I was so uninterested in food, and, but I was still eating it because I, I was told and led to believe that the only way for me to be elite was to eat 500 grams of carbs a day. And yeah, was I doing it? I was, was I gaining weight? I was not. Was I hella inflamed? 100%. Like I was puffy. Yeah. And you didn't look right. Like my, jo- my <laughs> joints hurt. And it's like the, the, the act of eating is an inflammatory act and, and, and it's expensive. It is. And exhausting. I just to, to tack onto that and then I'll let you continue. When I carb load and I eat like 550 grams carbs, I can do that and feel okay. I don't feel like I'm force feeding. Like if I spread it out through the the day, I feel like I could do it. Doing it every day would be just a lot of effort and work and planning and a lot of just not like simply just a lot of time chewing and eating and drinking and worrying about food. Yep. Yeah. It's just like one more thing to do. Um, and making sure that you're like digested for your training. Yep. I don't, I don't know how you can eat that much food and also train and feel good. Yeah. I guess, um, the interesting thing, and there's a lot that has not been elucidated, with this particular theory and how it applies or might apply to athletes. And so I, I'm the first to recognize that and and say like, I don't have the answers. I don't know what's right. There is definitely a minimum intake requirement to output at a high level and recover from that. Is it 4,000 calories a day? Maybe not, maybe so, but also maybe not. And I think that um, it's fine to explore different avenues and different options and say, again, as an athlete, I feel good doing this. I do not feel good doing this. Yeah. I think the big takeaway from this entire podcast is nutrition is extremely personalized. Yeah. Like while there are blanket statements and recommendations and you know what the science says, um, there are so many differences between people and their goals and what they're doing during the day and like their genetics and 
their training history and how much muscle it, it's so individualized yes and i think that the the trick and the trap that people fall into is they think they they don't think of their body in the right way or they don't think of the human body in the right way and that is uh it's a, a dynamic biological system and the, the overlap between human nutrition and what I used to do for work and the reason why I think like it's easy for me to conceptualize this um, and the reason why I, I love the job that I used to have and I love working in cell culture and that part of pharmaceutical development is you can apply, you're applying traditional and well-known engineering principles to a highly dynamic biological system that is not always going to respond in the same way. And so you do your best to control the inputs and you lower your expectations that things are going to work out exactly as they should because you're dealing with a living, breathing thing that, you know, do like cells don't have feelings, but humans do. And there's a lot that goes into you know, what comes out the other end. And um, humans are no different. There are like we we live with all kinds of stress in our lives. We all operate with different genetic potential. We have different subcultures of microbes that live in our gut that impact not only the way that we digest and process food it impacts how much food we need and it impacts our brains um there are so many inputs that are innate to being a human being that you can't control you can't see and you can't measure and so what that requires is a um a dynamic approach to nutrition and while you you can be steadfast in what you believe to be true, you have to be somewhat flexible in your approach because you have to be respectful of the fact that you are not guaranteed a certain output just because you're putting in a certain input, I guess. Couldn't have said it better myself. Literally could not have. That was great. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess we should, we can wrap this one up. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, I, yeah, I think my closing thought was, yeah, it's very individualized and different approaches can be taken to optimize every single person in their own way. Yep. Um, and I think that's partially why I really like nutrition coaching is because every time a client comes in, it's, it's exciting because nobody is the same. And, and that, and that's, that's on the nutrition, um, aspect and on the mental and like behavioral aspect so it's just it's quite an interesting field and I think another thing just on a, my last closing note is that and I read this recently um the the science of nutrition is is very 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 young relative to other sciences and while there is a lot known about it each and every study you know just like the point of science is to kind of like you know disprove almost like disprove theories and find out new things and and we're still doing that so we can you know we're it's not to say that something might that we've said on this podcast might be disproven in a month or two but the majority of the things that we preach have been um pretty well established yes yeah the pillars of nutrition are well understood, well established, and are not going anywhere. The nuance is what, where kind of the new science exists, and it's where a lot of the self-experimentation is. Um, but if you are putting the appropriate amount of emphasis on the pillars and an appropriately small amount of emphasis on the nuance, you will have good success. That's it. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening uh, again. 
Um, like, subscribe, follow, do all of the podcast things. I don't know. I feel like we could be doing a better job with our like promotion, but whatever. Just like, you, you know what we love? We love when you like screen capture and put, put it in your story. Yeah. And say, you got to listen to this. So do that right now. I really, that's the best. Cause like, I know people are listening. They love it and they're sharing it with other people. Yep. And we couldn't ask for more. Yep. So thanks again. And we'll talk to you super soon.